Well, good morning to all of you, honored guests among us, those of you who are here week after week. Open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 42. I wish you all a very blessed Pentecost Sunday that we have with us today. I I am absolutely rejoicing in the spring. I hope you are as well. Seems like it was about three years ago that we had leaves on the trees, so it's awful exciting to have that with us. And uh, we have a great privilege this morning to look into Genesis. As I mentioned last week, you know, it is, it is God's responsibility in trials is to teach us Christians wisdom. And it's our responsibility in the midst of trials to receive the trial with joy and to fight through and to work through spiritually the bitterness, the anger, the distrust that wells up in our hearts. Uh, resentment that goes against the Lord in our hearts, not only against people. So it's God's responsibility to teach us wisdom, and it's our responsibility to grow in joy and to be the kind of Christians that reflect the fact that we trust an all-good and wise God. And this week we're going to learn the, the fruit of trials, that is to apply the wisdom that we learn in the midst of a trial. And specifically, this text is going to help us to learn how to create the spiritual climate for forgiveness and reconciliation. Where we are now in the book of Genesis is the trials of Joseph are over. You remember he was sold by his brothers as a slave into Egypt. For 13 years he suffered down there, forgotten, falsely accused, put in prison for alleged rape, while in prison, neglected, forgotten, and even though he interpreted the cupbearer's dream that it restored the cupbearer to the right hand of Pharaoh, yet Joseph was not only not remembered, he was also forgotten. You remember the realities of the great trials that he went through. And then last week, we looked at the restoration, the amazing occurrence. Now we have Joseph. He rides through the city in a chariot. And men run before him and they cry out to all those standing on either side, bow the knee, Joseph is coming through. We saw last week in chapter 41 the majestic climb that he has made in the span of but a few hours, going from the pit of a dungeon all the way to the place of a lead uh, government official connected with all kind of religious power over all the land of Egypt. It has been an amazing time. Can you imagine what Joseph must have learned over those course of those years? What do you learn when you're so forgotten, when you're so unloved? You learn that no one actually loves you. You learn that you are not naturally, inherently worthy of love. Boy, is that a stern trial to learn. And you learn in the midst of it that yet God himself loves you. And he loves you only by grace alone. Not because of your performance. Not because of any spiritual value you offered him. Not because you give him anything that he didn't already have. But merely because of who he is. He has chosen to set his kind affection upon you. And so after 13 years of some of the most scourging trials, Joseph, listen, by the time he becomes this man of Egypt, he has no need for any man to either affirm or to shame him. Simply put, men have very little to do with Joseph's inner life. 
Though they praise or though they shame, it matters not for him. He has been tested to the severity of his inner man, and now he is the man to save not only the nation of Egypt, but nations surrounding Egypt with the coming famine. He is filled now with great integrity. He is unbuyable. You cannot take him to a place where he is submissive to your desires to want to bribe him. He is a man of great integrity and as we see this morning, a man of great wisdom. The past seven years in Egypt are exactly as he predicted before Pharaoh and his retinue. The years have been abundant. The Nile has overflowed its banks like never before. And the crops have simply grown up in a greater abundance such as never. And Joseph has stored away over all the land and throughout the cities bunkers, massive bunkers of grain for seven years. So much so, the text tells us they could no longer even count it. Probably because at that time, mathematics didn't even have numbers to count how vast the store of grain was. And so they've produced this amazing amount of crops. And all of that has gone on, and Joseph is still the same man. You can be sure of that. He's not patting himself on the back for anything inside of himself. Sifted, refined, tested, and purified. But what about his brothers? What about his brothers who sold him down to Egypt? What is the last 17, 18 20 years been like for them, as long as Joseph's been gone out of their life, they sold him. We can be pretty sure that they've been pasturing sheep all this time, and while they've been pasturing sheep, they've been hiding guilt as well. As a result, we can be pretty certain that they don't love each other, they don't really care for each other. Whatever things they do together is only because of familial obligation, And then lastly, what is it like for Jacob, the dad, the father? What has the last 18 years been like for him? Well, we don't need to speculate. Look at chapter 42. Now Jacob, that's the father, saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? He said, behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us. From that place, so that we may live and not die. Did you read that dysfunction in that passage? These men do not get along. Joseph, excuse me, Jacob does not love his sons. He loves them as a father ought to love a son, because that is your son after all. But his heart is bitter against them. Do you see the sarcasm in Verse 1, why are you staring at one another? I bet the sons had never considered the unintended consequences when they had pretended that Joseph was dead and they gave their dad the bloodied coat. So sad. And the fact is that over the past 18, 20 years, Jacob sadly hasn't changed from what he was before in spite of the grievous trial that his own sons have put him through Look at verse 3. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, 
I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. The dad holds back the favored son. He hasn't learned anything from what he had done to his own son Joseph, and now he's doing it with his own son Benjamin. Yes, sons of his beloved Rachel, what a fool to have children through four women. And to imagine that the consequences of doing so really so contrary to Scripture and to what God had spoken to our, our forefathers in the Garden of Eden. For this reason, a man shall find a wife, take a woman. The two shall be one flesh. Uh, Jacob did it differently, didn't he? He's a deceiver. He has, he has a better way. He knows how to work around God, and he knows how to get what he wants through manipulation. And now it comes back on his head, as it always does. And so all this now leads us to Joseph's, how he handles his brothers and how he handles his father, Jacob. We need to stop here and think about the greater context of what we're going to get into. So I want you to follow with me for just a minute here. I want you to remember that Joseph is a creature, just like us. He's not the creator. And as the creature, he is always duty-bound to forgive his fellow creatures. He is fellow bound, just like duty bound, just like you and I are duty bound to forgive one another and to forgive all men. This is not true of the Creator. He is not duty bound to forgive all men. This is our duty as men. Because it is our duty to forgive one another doesn't mean that to forgive is simple. In fact, it rarely is. And in fact, genuine forgiveness is a rare jewel. Rarely do you ever see genuine forgiveness so happen that there is the fulfillment of the forgiveness, genuine reconciliation. Most of the time, there's a mock and pseudo-forgiveness that only goes partway that just says, we just won't talk about it. Rarely do you ever see the realities of a full-throated forgiveness. Now, God is so great. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, he takes our sins and he throws them in the deepest part of the sea. He removes them from us as far as east is from the west. The scripture literally says, I will not remember your sins. In other words, every time they would come before God, he chooses, I don't remember that. God gives you and I, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, an unconditional forgiveness from all of our sin. He removes, rarely though, the consequences of our sin. Those things that we have done, those things that we have said, those actions, those deeds, those cheats, those lies, the adulteries, the scams, the forgeries, he rarely, if ever, maybe sometimes he takes away the consequences, but rarely does, even though he grants to us unconditional forgiveness out of his kindness. But among us men, unconditional forgiveness is often an unwise thing. For example, Child molesters are are murderers. We are obligated from the heart to forgive our fellow creatures because in heart they're really no different than we are. We're the same stuff. We're made from the same soiled Adamic cloth. We all learned naughtiness at Adam's knee. 
We're all the same as even the worst. Therefore, but by the grace of God go I, right? And so while we are duty-bound to forgive, rarely in serious situations is it wise to go with unconditional forgiveness. We do not allow child molesters to go wherever they want to and pretend to ourselves that now that I've forgiven you from the heart, you can go and do whatever you want. We certainly are obligated even to forgive murderers, and yet are we also not obligated to have them executed by capital and just means? Scripture affirms both. Now, we need to understand, in a case of like a pastor who falls into adultery, that he is to have forgiveness, but he is not to be restored back into the office of being a pastor again. So, even in a number of levels, we all, I think, understand that while there can be forgiveness offered and forgiveness given from the heart, there are many situations in life where it is very unwise to offer unconditional forgiveness to an individual. But everybody should be forgiven from the heart. None of us are any better than anybody else, really, certainly as God sees us. And there are always folks who teach that forgiveness means forgive and forget. Never really hold the offender's feet to the fire. Never really hold them to the consequences. And they claim that this is the Christian thing to do in all situations, is to forgive and to forget. It isn't wise. We certainly do forgive the murderer from the heart, but we also affirm the right that he should have his life taken. So let me just say it again. In our cases... In our situations as creatures, we are duty-bound to forgive spiritually. We are duty-bound to forgive even emotionally. And I'm not saying that's something that's done in an hour. That may take years to forgive somebody who has deeply wounded you. And so we forgive from the heart. We forgive spiritually. But there are sins that have such grievous consequences that the consequences cannot be overlooked and it is foolish to do so. In such cases, we do forgive from the heart, but there must be consequences in order to bring about reconciliation. If we would be wise this morning and in our lives concerning forgiveness, we would allow ourselves for the next few minutes to sit at Joseph's feet, learn from this unique man of human history, as recorded to us infallibly and inerrantly in sacred scripture, of how this man handles a case of forgiveness and reconciliation with his own friend, with his own family. And so this shows us here Joseph working to forgive his brothers, a betrayal that was 18, 20 years ago, There are consequences that they need, that they have to go through to work them through their consciences and to bring them to the place of repentance. So Joseph's going to put his brothers through a few trials. Ready? Trial number one. We've seen this before. False accusation. Hey, we've been here before. Joseph first puts his brothers through a trial that he himself has experienced. False accusation. Join me in verse 6. Here it goes. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Hello, dream fulfillment. 
When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had had about them and said to them, don't you guys remember me? I'm Joseph. No. You are spies, and you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. And yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers and all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And our behold, our youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Joseph said to them, it is as I said, you are spies. What's he doing? He's putting them under the trial of false accusation. Remember he went through that with Potiphar's wife? Joseph knows what such a trial produces, a false accusation. Next, He's going to put his brothers through another trial, a trial of neglect. Oh, we, we've seen that with Joseph's life. In the prison, nobody thinks about him. Nobody cares for him. Look at verse 15. Joseph continues, By this you will be tested. Ah, there's a key word in this passage. Joseph is testing them. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Man, that must have been interesting. He is intentionally producing affliction in their lives in order to get to their conscience. Neglect him for three days. Let him feel what it's like to be in prison. You know, with a tender conscience, you can correct and, and bring to a form of repentance through words alone. But with a hard conscience, with a hardened conscience, you have to apply physical consequences. We do that with our children when they're young. As people get older, we trust the Lord to bring in the fact that you're going to reap what you sow, and the consequences of life, or maybe even God is going to bring in severe consequences into a, a life in order to get to work on them and bring them to a place where they're beginning to get ready for repentance and faith in Christ. You ready? Let's go to trial number three, because Joseph isn't done yet. He's going to impose on them false guilt. Verse 18. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go, carry grain, in, grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words may be verified, and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, here it goes. Truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. You know, they're like karma believers. What goes around comes around. Reuben answered them, 
saying, did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They're now having, Joseph is now having success quickly in applying trials to their lives. So he imposes upon them the false guilt of blood money. Look at verse 23. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept, but when he returned to them and spoke to them, you think he's soft yet? No. He took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, and look at this, and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey, and thus it was done for them." So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank. Is that the way you feel when you get a sack of money? I doubt it. And they turned, trembling, to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? Money is blood money because it reminds them of their criminal activity with Joseph, their brother. God, this is the reality of false guilt. Something good comes to you, and knowing inside you absolutely deserve The exact opposite, it crushes you and makes you utterly despondent. It's working. Now, Joseph, you're going to see that he's going to have a part of the trial specifically for his own dad. The brothers are going to make it on home. They're going to travel on home, and they're going to spin their dad. They're going to spin him on the story of what happened down in Egypt. Verse 29 When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. We said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. See the spin here? Man, we, we really had a hard time, Dad, when we went down to Egypt. The guy down there was awful to us. He was awful. He spoke harshly to us. Of course, we defended our honor. We told him we are honest men. The word there for roughly, they spoke, the man spoke to us harshly in verse 30 is the word used for, for a woman going through childbearing pains in the book of Genesis. Or even wrath, a man's wrath. It was harsh, whatever Joseph did to them. It was seriously harsh. In other words, Dad, you need to feel sorry for us. We went through a really hard time getting this grain. And then you see now the trials start to affect Jacob. Join me in verse 33. 
They continue, the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will give your brother to you and you may trade in the land. It came about as they were emptying their sacks that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were dismayed. Their father Jacob said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. It's just so self-centered. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. This old man hurt. Wounded. Simply has such grave distrust of his children. Reuben says something really dumb in the next couple of verses. Basically, you can take my sons, you know, and if I don't return, you can kill my sons. Yeah, thanks a lot, Reuben. That's exactly what I want to do as their grandfather. I want to kill your sons. That's a wonderful solution. Thank you so much. I couldn't imagine. If you imagine his sons who are probably adults by now. Hey, thanks, Dad. Wow. This is how dysfunction goes through the family line. Mm. But what a trial for this man. Why would Joseph arrange a trial for Jacob? As I said earlier, he's a deceptive guy, and Joseph by now understands his dad's character. He's a grown man, Joseph is. His dad's a deceptive man. Married to four women, 12 sons. But the greatest offense that Jacob had done was he preferred Joseph over all the other sons. And that had created all the conflict that had ended up Joseph being basically desired to be killed by his brothers, but then sold down to Egypt as the situation went. So, is what Joseph is doing dishonoring to his dad Jacob? Well, no, because he's not directly afflicting his father like he is directly afflicting his brothers. Remember, by this time now, Joseph is himself a dad, and he understands the emotions of a father to his sons. And he knows that his father now has switched the affections that his dad once had for him over to Benjamin more than all the other sons. And he knows Joseph does that his brother Benjamin is always going to be in really in trouble, possibly to be murdered by his own brothers. That all has to come to an end if God's purposes for Israel are to succeed. Because otherwise, these brothers are going to fall into each other and they're going to end up killing one another, humanly speaking. Only now, in this way, can the through these trials that he is initiating, can the genuine forgiveness and genuine reconciliation take place. You know, God himself may ordain other people's sins against us in order to gain our attention maybe gain our repentance, but to form us into the image of Christ and teach us at a deep, deep level what forgiveness is all about. Why wouldn't he do that? Did he not do that with his own beloved son? And did he not do it with his servant Joseph here? Of course. Rare, maybe actually it's impossible that you can go through this life 
and not have people severely sin against you. Some people get it when they're very young. Others, when they're quite old, from children even. But I I really wonder if there's anybody who goes through this world, except those guys who like go off and live by themselves in some kind of a monastery somewhere and never talk to anybody. And even them, they probably get sinned against by somebody. I mean, it's just such a part of living on a cursed world is to have someone, people, family, friends, church so wickedly treat you that they sin against you with reckless abandon. And now the trial is upon you to work in your heart and to bring about genuine reconciliation. Mark Snowberger, professor over at Detroit Theological Seminary, says this, what does biblical repentance require? Forgiveness begins by abandoning feelings of bitterness and vengeance and may graciously expand to include the cancellation of debts, financial and or punitive. But these are not properly forgiveness. The heart of biblical forgiveness is instead reconciliation or the restoration of a mutual relationship and even mutual respect. Did you get that? Forgiveness and reconciliation is not just merely about getting past this thing. It's about reestablishing mutual respect, mutual relationship, mutual honor. Mark goes on, he says this. The term mutual is critical here and implies that forgiveness rests necessarily on an overture by the wrongdoer. Forgiveness in its proper sense is not a unilateral action. The offender must instead humble himself to seek it by expressing repentance. Only then may the record of the offense be erased and the sin covered. The biblical requirement is not that believers forgive willy-nilly, but that they stand ready at all times to extend forgiveness to those who confess and repent of their sins, following the example of God in Christ, who himself stands always willing to forgive any who come to him confessing their sins and desirous to repent. It really is conceivable that had not Joseph entered in at this point, that the brothers may have turned on each other to kill each other, and even causing a far greater distress upon their father Jacob. And so by Joseph initiating this trial, even though it presents a difficulty for the dad, it yet mitigates a far greater pain upon his soul than he would have had otherwise. A number of years ago, a good number of years ago now, back in the 90s, our family went through a very deep trial. And thankfully, and my wife and I, it produced some very needed maturing. We were in our first church out of seminary. A man had arranged for us to go visit the church who I had gone through seminary with. And we flew out and met the church, and the people were oh so nice, and we loved the area. And they invited us to come 
and they moved us out to this church, and we went there. And after a little less than one year, they held a vote, and this vote that was instigated by the same man that had invited me out, who I had started seminary with and had finished seminary with, resulted in me being fired from the church. Oh, our hearts were so crushed. We had searched them, everybody we could talk to. What have we done wrong? How have we offended? Not a single person could bring up a, or would bring up a single thing. The lack of an answer left me feeling so disconcerted unable to stand anywhere. What could I do? How could I fix this? What did I need to repent of? I had entered into ministry hoping that I would be used of the Lord, and here I was now out of ministry, fired, distressed. You get fired as a pastor, you can just pretty much forget about it. Nobody ever is going to want to have you come pastor their church. Sadly, this man, who had been such a good friend, became the next pastor of the church. And within a short period of time, he committed adultery. And he has disappeared since then. And the church utterly vaporized shortly after and has not been in existence for well over a decade now. One of my mentors from the seminary that I went to, who is now the man who runs the entire seminary, wrote me a note of encouragement while we were much, very much in the midst of that difficulty and feeling angry and confused and wanting revenge but not knowing what to do. It was a quote that, had been, that he had called from an old Chicago pastor named A.W. Tozer. Many of you have heard of him. And it was just a snippet. It was at the end of a lovely note, and this is what it said, and I give this to you. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. I suppose that's true. I suppose that's true. Our beloved Lord Jesus Christ learned obedience through the things in which he suffered, did he not? Did not Peter, in order to become the chief of the apostles have to be the guy who was smacked back and forth by Jesus? He really did. He had to be hurt deeply. Paul, all the great men, look at Joseph before us today. What a quality man. What a tested man. But can we trust this God who willingly afflicts his servants, who willingly afflicts his children. I tell you, you have to, because he, as Scripture says, he wounds, but he also heals. He desires to form in you something of such superlative value that it extends to eternity and it extends through time long after you are gone through the way that he weaves people's lives together in the tapestry of time. So for us to hold on to the bitterness and the rancor and the distrust and to tell him that he has done wrong in our hearts 
and that we have a right to be bitter and angry and not to extend forgiveness from the heart is for us to simply put ourselves as judges over the Almighty and to invite much further scourging, by the way. And that's nobody's fun. No, the Lord is merciful and gracious. His loving kindness is eternal. He never afflicts the sons of men willingly. He only does it because it is ultimately for our very much better. And I would stand before you today and say amen and amen. That is the very greatest thing that there can be in life is for God to treat you like you are his own child because, in fact, you are his own child by faith in Jesus Christ and therefore are an inheritor of heaven. You have before you the most ultimate and awesome eternity. And today, if need be, for a short while, you are being afflicted by various trials. But trust this, that the testing of your faith will indeed produce something that is so valuable and fruitful and lovely even in your own eyes, though nobody else might see it. Jesus Christ will produce in you something that is so excellent that the demons will quake and the angels will sing and you shall have forever and ever in his presence a song of your heart. He has made me like him. And you will see him as he is when he appears. Well, let's move on to the next stage of Joseph's wise treatment of his family. They've, they finally run out of food if they've taken back, and they have to go back down to Egypt. And Joseph gets what he wants. He wants to put his brothers in an impossible-to-get-out-of trial. Join me in chapter 43, but drop your eyes down to verse 11. The father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. In other words, if we have to go back down to Egypt, then do this. Basically, he says, put a gift together, a gift basket. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present a little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back your hand. Take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, right. Take your brothers also and arise, return to the man, and may El Shaddai, may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother. Who? They don't even mention him, and that's going to be important in a second. And Benjamin, and as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Oh, God is so against me. So the men took this present. They took double the money in their hand. And Benjamin, then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Now, Joseph here is going to act with grace. Remember what grace is? Un deserved favor. What did these men deserve? Actually deserve from Joseph? Well, you can figure that one out, but watch what happens when he treats them with grace. You ready? Verse 16. When Benjamin, when Joseph saw Benjamin, his own blood brother, with them, he said to his house steward, bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the men did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. 
And they said it is because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we are being brought in that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves. And here's their incredible intelligence. With our donkeys. It was really going bad, but now they're going to take our donkeys. Like, you know, that's what you do, right? You want to hurt somebody, you take them into your house, and then you also steal their donkeys. Like Joseph needs donkeys. Boy, you just see the conscience aroused over their guilt. Good means evil. Evil means good. They can't figure it out. Now they're trying to get out of their expected trouble by telling Joseph's assistant how honest they are. Verse 19, so they came forward to hear Joseph's house steward near and spoke to him at the entrance of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. It came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we have brought it back in our hand. We have also brought back down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put money in our sacks. And here comes the grace again. He said, do be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father, can't you imagine the wheel spinning, has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. They didn't even ask for Simeon. They've been gone for likely six months, eating the grain, munching at night, forest fires going. Nobody's asking about Simeon. You know why? Because they don't love Simeon. He's inconsequential. They don't love each other. You know, Simeon, I mean, he's such a dweeb. So, no honor among the family members. The love is gone. Oh, the important one, the dad is Benjamin, Simeon. Who cares if he gets lost down there in Egypt? Verse 24. Then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard there were to eat a meal there at this high Egyptian official's home. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. Uh-huh. Then they asked him about their welfare. He asked them about their welfare. He's so nice to them. Is your old father well, of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, your father, is well. He is still alive. They bowed down in homage. As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurriedly went out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Trial is hard enough on him. Then he washed his face and came out. And he controlled himself and said, serve the meal. So they served him by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the stinky Hebrews. For that is loathsome to the Hebrew, to the Egyptians. <laughs> so real, isn't it? Now they were seated before him. 
the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. How did he do that? He took portions to them from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of them, any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Now this was really cool. You have the birth order going from Reuben all the way down to the end to Benjamin. And they're looking at each other going, how did that happen? <laughs> Joseph, in other words, knew every single one of them by sight. He hadn't forgotten. He knew their characters. He knew them individually. He knew their faces. It had brought him to the place of uncontrollable crying when he saw his brother Benjamin. So how does he alleviate that? Well, you can go off and cry and wash your face, but here's another way to do it. I love what it says here in verse 34. He gave Benjamin five times as much as any of them. Five times as much turkey. Five times as much stuffing. Five times as much mashed potatoes and gravy placed on top. Five times as much pumpkin pie and apple pie and squash pie. And onions, no, no onions. Because it was love uncontrollable love to his brother. And it's grace. All of it is grace to his brothers. He gives them all food. He sets them all at ease. He gives the youngest five times as much. Oh, so much grace, so much kindness. Do you think that grace, though, is sufficient enough to arouse repentance? Be good to someone and they'll repent. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's going to work to me. Not yet, anyways. So it's time for round three. You ready? Round three, chapter 44. We need to mix the grace that he just gave them now with a new round of punishments for crimes they did not commit. So Joseph commands each man's money once again be put in his own bag along with the grain, and he takes a special cup that he owns, through which he does divination. That's either you put dice in there and roll them and determine what course of action you're going to do, or you take animal parts, innards, and put them in there and let them splay out, or tea leaves, like you hear it even today, reading the tea leaves and stuff like that. Whatever it was, and I don't encourage you to go out and buy your own divination cup, by the way, uh, for those of you who are so tempted, we have something far better. But that's what they did back then. That's what a man like Joseph could do. This was before the writing down of sacred scripture. And so the Lord allowed it for that time. Joseph is a prophet of the Most High God. This is before Moses. Well, we pick it up in verse 4, so let's go there. They had got, just gone out of the city... And we're not far off. When Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which you have, he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Now watch the self-righteousness. Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? <laughs> With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. They are so 
confident in their own righteousness. Boy, that's got to be brought out. A man or woman's inner perspective of self has to be brought out. That lavish love and false perspective we all have of self. How wonderful I am. What a gift to creation I am. What a pleasure it was for that person to have the opportunity to talk to me today. need to get all that, need to be surfaced so that they see it and hear it and they think it and they feel it. Brothers, <laughs> so verse 10, so the steward says, so, well, okay, let it also be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then they hurried, each man lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened a sack. He searched beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. That was the steward who did this. Wasn't this brilliant? Let's start with you, Reuben. Verse 12, and the cup was found in the last kid's sack, Benjamin. Then they tore their clothes. And when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. A totally false accusation against these guys that Joseph arranged. Once again... Joseph knows a few things about the kind of humility that false accusation can produce, does he not? See all this self-righteousness? Oh, it's amazing. Well, now the self-righteousness has to be removed. Verse 14, Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. He was still there. They fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that a man such as I can practice divination? So Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak and how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one whose possession the cup has been found. By the way, this isn't actually perfect repentance here, by the way. It's just simply saying we're your slaves is not enough. It's more like We're dead meat, is what he should have said. The Lord of the land of Egypt, you stole something from him? End of it. Men, and then you walk away, and they are over. So even Judah doesn't have perfect repentance, but Joseph sees what he needs to see. You finally have the the self-righteousness exposed. You finally have the fact that now Judah finally says, our guilt is exposed. God has done this. And he steps up in a most remarkable way, very touching way, and explains to Joseph how his own dad would die if Benjamin didn't come back. And then Judah offers himself to be Joseph's slave. But you've got to let my youngest son go back, because otherwise my beloved dad would die. It's an act of substitution. And upon the act of substitution, Joseph is going to receive it. Judah is taking guilt for another. He's putting himself in the place of exchange. Make me your slave. Let the boy go. The boy is innocent. Let me be the guilty one 
for all the family. Only let not my father suffer. Let me be punished. Let horrors come upon me. Let me be separated from my wife and children. Let me forever bear the stigma and shame. Only let the others go that they may experience good. And we'll see next week that Joseph receives that and reveals himself to his brothers. Most remarkable way. This is the gospel in Genesis, beloved. A man acts righteously and offers himself to be the exchange, the substitution to be treated awfully in order that others go free, in order that others may be forgiven. According to the false accusation, but the accusation in the air, nonetheless, Benjamin is guilty. But by Judah's grace, he will insert himself and be the substitute. And you treat me as the guilty one and let the actual guilty one go free. Ah, you have the gospel of Jesus Christ. The great, righteous, sinless Jesus of Nazareth has stood as a sinless man before the Roman soldier's whips. He stands sinless while the flesh of his back is flayed open. The spikes are inserted in between the phalanges of both hands and feet. And the man is nailed to a cross and it is placed upright and it thuds into the ground. Perfectly righteous exchange. The substitute. So that we who are the guilty and condemned by our sins may instead be forgiven by one who is punished in our place. Beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ, which means that we offer nothing to God, but God has done all this necessary to secure our complete and unconditional forgiveness was done through a perfect substitute, the Lamb of God. So believe and receive that today, beloved, guests, friends. Receive it. Let's pray. And Father in heaven, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, we want to give you honor, glory, praise, for the amazing, lovely substitution of Jesus of Nazareth, the blameless lamb, sacrificed as a substitute on our behalf. Thank you for the wonders that you teach us of forgiveness and reconciliation and how you have brought it all to pass for us who were unable to bring it to pass for ourselves. I grant to each person in this room here deep faith and I ask for your blessing in your sons, for your son's glory. Amen.